Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 6 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm really excited to be bringing you this new season of shows coming to you on the first and third Wednesdays of every month. I have a great lineup of fascinating conversations with incredible musicians, songwriters, guitarists, steel guitarists, drummers, composers, who knows what else. I've been having an incredible time diving deep with these folks, and I know you're going to enjoy listening. Just a reminder that this year I've taken out the short song samples through the show, as things have gotten way more complicated as far as legal use of music goes, so I'll be making an accompanying Spotify playlist to each episode, which you'll find in the episode's show notes and at the website at makersandshakerspodcast.com. So anytime you hear this cute little slide guitar sound, you'll know there's a track to go along with it on the playlist. We have some new sponsors this year, but continue to be largely listener-supported. Your help in keeping the show going is always appreciated, and you can do it with a one-time donation or a Patreon subscription. Patreon is a monthly payment of your choice, and when you sign up for that, you get a bit of added content as well as an ad-free version of the show to listen to. If you don't feel like kicking in any dough, that's cool too, but you can help by subscribing for free on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just spread the word by sharing the show, following us on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and telling all your pals about it. You can get links to all this stuff, of course, at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Meanwhile, many thanks to our sponsors this season. Please check them out and let them know that I sent you. They are Isotope, Ear Trumpet Labs, Union Tube and Transistor, Black Mountain Picks, and Spectra 1964. Hey folks, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 120 and the first show of season six. Welcome to it. I'm really excited to bring you my conversation today with Steve Poltz. Steve is a totally unique performer. Musician, writer, guitar player. I've known him uh, a little bit, I guess, through gigs and festivals here and there. And I think we did some shows together at one point when I was playing with Birds of Chicago. Anyway, Steve lives here in Nashville, and we had a chance to connect earlier this year and talk about his incredible new album called Stardust and Satellites that he made here in Nashville with Oliver Wood. And when we spoke, the album hadn't quite come out yet, but it's out now, so make sure you go get it. But albums aside, Steve has developed this totally distinct live performance style that kind of rides the wave between beauty and chaos, sometimes at the same time. And it's so insanely fun to watch and be a part of his shows. He makes up songs on the spot and he engages with audiences in ways that you've never seen before or never will again. There is no one like him and his energy is off the charts. For someone that's been at this racket for over 40 years, he just seems to be getting going. And he he's sort of the opposite of most musicians his age and shows no signs of, of being jaded or frustrated with the current state of affairs. 
he did have some crazy success in in his early years, which is important to know about as well. Um, after endlessly touring with his band called the Rugburns, he started playing with an unknown artist at the time named Jewel, and co-wrote a bunch of songs with her. One of which became the massive hit "You Were Meant for Me," that came out in 1996. And uh, since then, he's made a string of incredible solo albums that are funny, soulful, and just brilliantly written and performed. Steve also has some Canadian in him, which has led him to tour there quite a bit. And he's become a favorite live act all over Canada, as well as here in the U.S. Anyway, we had a wild and awesome conversation. We played some music together as well, including a beautiful little Christmas song, which we played nowhere near Christmas time because uh, why not? Steve has tons of music out there, so go see him live or stream or buy his music or buy his wicked shirts and merch. He really is an incredible songwriter, and as you'll hear, he's also a killer guitar player. You can get info on him and his tours and all his shenanigans at Pulse.com. And just wanted to put a quick shout out there to David Monahan and thank him for making a donation to the show this week. All right, let's get down to it. Enjoy my conversation with Steve Pulse. So the legend has it. There's this whole story. First of all, I love these stories that people pass on because I don't know if they're true. It's the best The kind. first one is Roger Miller is at an airport and a young songwriter walks up to him at the airport in Nashville and he goes, Mr. Miller, Mr. Miller, um, I was wondering if you could give me tips. I'm a young songwriter and I want to I do what you're doing. And he goes, yeah, I got some advice for you. He goes, always keep your change in your left front pocket and your pills in your right front pocket because I just swallowed a quarter. <laughs> And then the other one was, there was uh, Chet Atkins was hanging out with Jerry Reed. Yeah. And then um, he said, hey, go home tonight and write a song in this tuning. And he gave him this tuning. But Jerry Reed was drunk. So yeah. he wrote the tuning down as um, D-G-D-E-B-D. G-B. D-G-D-E-B-D. Yeah, like he wrote it wrong. It didn't really make a lot of sense. And so Jerry Reed was like, well, I got to do it. Chet Atkins told me to do it. So Jerry Reed goes home and writes this song on this tuning. And then Chet Atkins will like open his shows with it. Really? But the tuning goes. It's in that tuning like that. It's called Steeple Chase Lane.
Yeah, man. It's so cool. Isn't Love that that tuning? So it's DGD. EBD. EBD. So it's basically open G tuning with the higher G tuned down to an E. So you get a six. Wow, that's yeah. trippy. So I ended up then, I was like, well, if I ever play that live, I should write another song in that tuning. So I just made a record with the Wood Brothers, and yeah. it'll be out in February. Yeah. So I wrote a song called Up With People. Mm-hmm. And I started, because I added that one part to Steeplechase line. I just did that goes, that's not in there. Okay. So I wrote a song that goes. Back in high school, I loved you. But I didn't have the courage to tell you. Cause I was high on quaaludes And listening to Foreigner We'd hang out at the swap meet And walk around in bare feet The Boone's Farm wine was so bittersweet Oh, up, up with people You meet them wherever you go up, up with people, they're the best kind of folks you know. So it's in that tune. Yeah. And I have Jono playing the shitar, uh-huh. doing that rhythm on it. Yep. So I was like, now I got two songs in that tuning, all because Jerry Reed wrote it down wrong and Amazing. it's influenced my life. Is I mean, that cool or what? In a way, it just sounds so Chet Atkins-y, like maybe he didn't get it wrong. It sounds maybe like not. It, that was the right tuning. So Chet would open his shows with Steeplechase Lane. So That song I played first. So Jerry Reed wrote the song or Chet Atkins wrote the song? Jerry Reed wrote it. Okay. And Chet would open his shows. Like you could see him coming out and he's like, dun da 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 Like he would open it with it. I think I saw him do it, actually. <laughs> yeah. It sounds really familiar. Um, I did a show with Tommy Emmanuel and Molly Tuttle and Paul Thorne couple months ago at City Winery where we were in the round. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, I was like, oh, I'm learning Steeplechase Lane. And Tommy Emmanuel just rips it out right there. He goes, I haven't played that in 20 years. And he does it perfectly. And I was like, oh, In that crazy-ass tuning? Like with the G down to the He e? did it without the tuning. Oh, okay. He goes, I could do it in the tuning, but let me figure it out like this. <laughs> that guy's like insane. He's insane, yeah. And he was playing on my songs with me and, yeah. you know, me and Molly. Because yeah. I've done shows with Molly where we'll do song to song, but never with Paul Thorne. And, right. um Tommy. Tommy. And Paul mm-hmm. Thorne's so funny. You know? Yeah. It was yeah. great. Yeah. Wicked. But what a city living here. I know. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. Yeah. I saw Tommy Emmanuel like in Vancouver. Where, that's where I'm from in the 90s. It was Vancouver? Like a, yeah. It was a double bill with him and Ben Harper before Ben Harper's first record came out. There was like eight people in this theater that held like 1,200. <laughs> before Ben Harper was big? Before his first record came out. It was like a month before. And it was you? It was me and like seven of my closest buddies. <laughs> and it was Tommy Emmanuel? <laughs> he was opening for Ben Harper. Yeah. And Ben Harper was playing solo Whoa. and his record hadn't come out and nobody had ever heard his name before. Except, and nobody was there to see Tommy either? Mm-mm. No, he was just like some freak from Australia at that, t- at that point. <laughs> and he came out and he was like sh- kind of shredding telly stuff. Like he wasn't even playing like acoustic finger style. He was playing like Eric Johnson-y kind of telly stuff. It was wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. The one thing I got to always remember and that I love is anybody who's made it big, be it Springsteen or anyone, has schlepped their own gear up five flights of yeah. stairs for the most 
the most terrible Loden in the world. Totally. And has been stiffed by a club owner, <laughs> has been told, can you do anything? Ticket sales are low. That's what I want on my tombstone. <laughs> we need help with tickets. <laughs> Just, yeah. Do you ever not need help with tickets? Is oh anything God. easy? I was saying that to my wife the other day. I was like, is anything ever just easy for me personally? Yeah. Like, cause constantly I'm like, it's a hustle. Yeah. It's a fucking grind, man. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I was I, talking to that about that yesterday, actually with, I had Tristan in here. Do you know her? No, but I want to know She's her. She's great. Yeah. yeah. I know of and her. She, and she was sort of talking about the same thing. Just like how, how the grind of, of all that is sort of like taking its toll on her a little bit, you know, and she's sort of scaled down her touring ambitions to just her and her husband and finds that a lot more comfortable, I think, these days. Yeah. It, yeah. Well. It's not like the old days when there was people like footing the bill for all that kind of stuff too, right? Which I'm sure we could talk about some of that, that kind oh, of stuff. Oh, yeah. I got to live through you, those you days. Got to have a band. Got to, but I, I wouldn't have it any other way right now. Like, I love it. Give me it all. Spotify, the whole deal. I don't even complain <laughs> about it. I'm like, I don't make hardly anything on that, nor do I care. But I have such a way to disseminate my music and to get it get it anywhere I want, through YouTube or anything. So I'm not yeah. really a complainer about it. Yeah, I wish they paid us more. But I don't even have time to worry about that because the way I look at it is I, have, I know people that have millions of Spotify spins but can't draw 10 people right i'm the opposite i have low spotify spins but I, I do really good road business yeah but that's only come from me just schlepping and doing yeah. it the hustle yeah and i make it fun let's talk about that so with my podcast i usually talk a fair amount about making records and i do want to ask you about mm. especially your new record which i haven't heard yet because it's not out yet but actually by the time this comes out the record will be out because it's oh, coming I out in got February, you an advanced right? copy oh well yeah, <laughs> we'll talk about it anyway. We could have graded it. <laughs> um, Red ink all over. So, it. but that aside, let's talk about this whole thing about how you function in this world because I've, it's so interesting to me how you have sort of like developed this almost like performance art way of <laughs> of doing what you do, where it almost seems like making records is like the the op, the antithesis of your whole thing like nailed you, it you do a lot of <laughs> you do a lot of improvisation you've developed that into a, like a songwriter performance thing that's totally different from what anyone else i've never seen anyone else do it you can do it well you know how the dead nobody really listened to their records yep <laughs> they went to see them live yep i swear to god like i love making records making records is an art form to me and i don't listen to my own records unless I'm on the road every once in a while, and I'm like, I got to learn a song because right. somebody sent a message. Could you please do this song? I'm like, God, I haven't. How, what tuning was I even? <laughs> and so I'll, like, I'll learn that, and I'll go, man. The one thing I feel really proud about is I really feel like I've made really good records. Like I'm proud of them. I don't listen to them and cringe. Yeah. But they're a different thing than what I do live. Right. But the only reason I've made good records is I've had really good producers that I've worked with. Yeah that I've fallen in love with that person mm -hmm. and we have this love affair while making a record. So tell me about that process for the for the new one, even though I haven't heard it. Uh, so yeah. you, you did it with Oliver Wood. Did yeah, you, I never did you do plan it at, anything. Yeah, that's the best way to do it. And so it was the pandemic and I was hanging out and I would go on walks every other day with Chris Wood. Yeah. And so he lived like four houses down from me. So me and Chris Wood, I got to know those guys. I opened for them 
And um, yeah, we were out, I was out with the birds opening for them when the, yeah. when the pandemic hit actually. So, yeah, yeah, you yeah. were. Yeah, yeah. So they love taking people out to open and yeah. the way I met them is I had a podcast with this guy Scott Sachs mm -hmm. and they they heard the podcast and then they wondering who I was and then I ended up doing some shows with them. So anyways, I would go on walks with Chris Wood and then me and Chris became close. I love him. Yeah. But the weird thing is, is he's not on this record. It's Oliver and Jono because He'd Chris moved, by this moved up, to, up BC. to, yeah. Um, Salt Spring Island. Salt Spring Island. Yeah. And they just bought a place. Yeah. And so he moved with Laura. And yeah. so what happened was Oliver would have me over to his house for dinner and, um, so I'd go over there and his wife does hearts in the mix and Rebecca. Yeah. Yeah. Rebecca will yeah. make meals. And so I was on Kayama with them Okay, and me and Chris Wood would have a dance off. They would call me up during their show <laughs> and Chris Wood's such a good dancer and I'm such a geek. I'm like an idiot dancer. So we have dance offs and we'll put a hat in the middle and he'll do his thing. And have you ever seen him dance? I have. Like his hips I saw him do it every night. And it's his freaky. knees. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. But he loves having a dance off with me and I'm like, Jim Carrey or something up there, like being a complete goof. And the audience seems to like it. I bet they do. <laughs> they go nuts. I bet they do. And then do. we just pick up our instruments and act all serious again. Mm -hmm. So we were doing like some John Hartford songs and stuff. And yeah. then we would do waterfalls. Yeah. And so anyways, Oliver was like, it was the pandemic was happening. He goes, hey, man, you should come check out our studio. And they have this place called The Studio. I, I rented the B room in there from them when I was moving to East Nashville. Like I had to. So you know work. the room. Yeah, I was in there for months. Yeah. It used to be like an old place where they would do pole dancing classes. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Which is, I love that, that there's this spirit there's mojo of pole in there. dancers yeah. in there. <laughs> so I went there and Jono, I love. Jono's like the secret sauce weapon of that oh band God. because they were He's a duo. Insane. It was just yeah. Oliver and Chris were touring in a little van, yeah. schlepping their equipment in. Yep. And then Jono came up and said, I need to join your band. Amazing. And Jono's, I don't know if you know his resume. You know, I don't really know where he comes from. He's well, just his like a dad was like a recording engineer and okay. did like Rolling Thunder review stuff. What's his dad's name? I got to look it up again. Something Ricks because okay. it's Jono Ricks. Yeah. I huh. did know that. Right. And they, so they said, come on in. And it was like a drug dealer going, the first one's free. <laughs> like, come on in, come on in. The first one's free. So I did this song I had written called Frenemy and Jono was playing piano and I was like, God, I didn't he's know a that. Monster keyboard player. He's like as good as keyboards as he is drums. Yeah. And so he was playing this stuff and playing the strings inside the piano. Yeah. And Oliver's just got such good ears. And Brooke is a great engineer. He is, yeah. And so I just went in there and I was like, man, I'm making a record. So getting back to your question, records just kind of happen for me because I start hanging out with somebody like I could be hanging out with you and you and I could end up going over to your house or you could go check out the studio got a new and I always have a new song and then you'd go <laughs> play a song and then you'd add some stuff to it. I go that's cool <laughs> do you know sounds what I like mean? a plan let's do it yeah and then I end up making a record and so uh, so were the songs ready or were you just creating them on the spot they were ready I always have a okay. lot of songs yeah so um, like all new ones or they've been sitting for years or what's they're the... usually always new. Okay. Um, sometimes I dust off a really old one, Yeah. but for the most part they're new, but, or I'll take, um, 
auto parts out of an old one and go, that was a <laughs> really good chorus, <laughs> but I didn't like the verses and that can be salvaged and yeah. make this Frankenstein car. But usually I'm always writing something new because I have a song due every week. Oh, do you have a publishing deal that you have to do that for? Or No, it's just with my friend Bob Schneider. He lives in Austin. Oh, And okay. so he'll send a song title out, and then I have to turn it in or I'm kicked out of the song game. Oh, wicked. So sometimes How long has that been going on for? Since 99. Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And well, when we first started, it was a song every 24 hours. But all he like has to do months. is provide the title? Yeah. Oh, come on. That's not fair. He provides, oh, he does it too. Oh, he does. Oh, okay. Yeah, so Bob Schneider has like thousands of songs. Who else is in this club? Well, it's always changed over the years. Billy Harvey, um, Jason Mraz, girl named Anya Marina. Yeah. It's um, M. Doty was in it for a while. Or no, um, the guy from Soul Coughing, what's his name? Yeah, M. Doty. Do 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 yeah, yeah, Doty or whatever. Yeah. yeah, he was in it for a while. There's always really? in people in and out. but. Okay. If you miss, you can get kicked out, and then you have to beg to be back in. So I don't like to get kicked out because so sometimes I'll just do the most just the most horrible in the thing into yeah. my voice memo on my phone just so I'm not kicked out. So you have to submit something. Yeah, that's the only rule. Okay. And what it does is, I used to think as a songwriter, you needed to have inspiration, and you would wait and go, gosh, I'm in a dry spell. I'm not writing. I'm blocked. Mm -hmm. But I believe that doesn't really exist as we think. And what, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is if I have deadlines, so say I work for um, the New York Times and I have a column due once a week, I have to write that column. That's how I make my living. Yep. So by having deadlines, I believe the neural pathways in your brain are like a muscle. And I truly believe doing what we do, we have like three muscles. One of the muscles is a performance muscle. Mm -hmm. The other is the songwriting muscle and the other is the recording muscle. So if you're writing these songs, you want to get them out. How do you get them out? You need to record them. So you need to learn how to be in a studio. You need to learn how to uh, sift through what material is stronger and make some sort of cohesive package and not overdo it and, and be ruthless and edit, edit, edit. And so your songwriting muscle can get really strong if you keep doing it and you have a deadline. You're like, oh, I just needed to finish a song. If I know, oh yeah, I can still write songs. I think sometimes we forget we write songs and then it can be like three months and we're like, I don't even know if I can write songs anymore. Yeah. Because we're only as good as our last song. Right. And so if you do this and keep submitting songs, out of 52 songs in a year, if you get 10% of those are good, you get five really good songs. And hopefully you're getting 20% of them are good because right. you're finishing them. And then you're ending up with, uh, I never want to put more than 10 songs on a record. Yeah. So you're able to make a record every year or every two years. And when you make a record, you know, nowadays it's different than when we made it before because before I would have a record deal and there'd be an A&R and everything. And now it's yeah. more like I'm on Compass Records. I mm -hmm. submit them this thing. I pay for it. Yeah. Then they, you know, I pay for the radio and for a publicist. But yeah. then I sometimes buy a publicist as well. Right. Like this, for this new record, I have Big Hassle, Ken Weinstein working it. Uh -huh. um, and that's your responsibility. And that's my responsibility. Uh -huh. I could use theirs, but it turns out- They have an in-house person. Yeah, they have in-house. And she was really good, but she- has left that company, so I'm not sure who they're going to get. So I'm kind of right. glad I have Ken work in this project. Yeah. 
And I known him since the days of Jewel back in like 94. He was Jewel's first publicist and broke her huge. And now he has big hassle. Like he took Jewel from living in her car. Like, I, have, I have a funny story about that. In, yeah. Van, in Vancouver, they used to like send her out on these like kamikaze touring oh, yeah. missions. And she opened for my band, my like shitty uh, well, we were pretty good, actually, like a hippie funk band in Vancouver. And she, her crazy VW van was parked in front of this club called the Gaston Music Hall for like three months. And she would just open for whoever the hell was playing. <laughs> so she, so Jewel opened for us. That's amazing. Yeah, it was, that was oh, like. She worked hard. She was, she was grinding it out, man. And it was just her. And she moved in with me from that van. Really? And we lived in La Jolla. And okay. I watched that, like she would then leave and then she ended up getting a Volvo and sometimes she would just leave and go sleep in the desert. She's, I always have said this about Jewel. She was kind of like a feral cat <laughs> who grew up in Homer with an outhouse. Oh, yeah, she's from Alaska. And she would, like, skin her own cattle. Whoa. And so she used to say to me, this is how I'd skin you open. And she'd take her fingernails and, like, slip me down my chest and say, I'd rip open your rib cage, pull your guts out, and I'd hang your skin up here. And she'd go, and I'd make shoes out of your skin. Like, she's really funny. <laughs> and so she grew up like just this total badass. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that they thought it was like this manufactured story, but it was true. And she was living in her van. And then um, we ended up writing some songs, and then that record became a huge hit, and we recorded it at Neil Young's Ranch and got to live up there. Are and you on the record? On Pieces of You, the okay. first one. I play yeah. guitar. Okay. And um, so that went nuts, that record. And I, I, it was really neat to be around something and see something explode. Yeah. Was, it, so was that record made like on a shoestring or was did she have a ton of money behind her early on? It was a pretty cheap, well, depending, you know, back in the day, 94 maybe. There was money flying around. There was around. money, but. Neil Young really wanted her to make it at his ranch because he saw her play somewhere and was like, hey, you can come live at my ranch and yeah. you can stay here. And then his manager, Elliot, was living at the ranch, but he left. And so we stayed, me and Jules stayed in Elliot's place and we lived up there. For and that. so you made the record at Neil Young's place? Yeah, and we lived at Neil oh, Young's cool, place. Man. And Ben Keith produced it of the Stray Gators. Really? He's the guy that played um, slide guitar on um, Crazy, Patsy oh, Cline. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then the drummer, so Ben Keith's dead now, and he used to weigh me before breakfast and then after breakfast because he couldn't believe how much I could eat. <laughs> and so he'd have a scale and he'd go, that was a three-pounder. <laughs> and he would make all this bacon and eggs and I would eat it all. And he'd go, God, I can't believe how much you can eat. <laughs> and I was like, I was like 33 at the time or something and yeah. Jules like I don't know 20 21 who yeah. knows but we we were making that record up there and the drummer was Kenneth Buttry oh my god and he's the guy that played drums on Rainy Day Women he's incredible yeah, yeah. -da 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 -da. and I asked him when I went in I go could you do that lick that opens up everybody must get stoned Rainy Day Women 12 and 38 yeah. and he goes yeah and he goes, ra -da 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 -da, ra -da 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 -da. And then the bass player was Ken Drummond, who's now wow, dead. You, so you guys so it was the Stray Gators. Holy shit. And That's I got heavy. to play acoustic guitar on a lot of the songs. Do, do they all live around that area or something? Is that like, um, or did they come in? They just, came in for the session. So wow. she had a budget, you yeah. know, and then um, Spooner Oldham on the keys. Holy shit. So it was the Stray Gators. <laughs> wow. With, and I got to be the acoustic guitarist. Amazing. And Jewel played acoustic too on it. Yeah. And sang and we lived at Elliot's place on Neil's property. Bananas. And then 
we got to go see, you know, where he kept his trains, his Lionel trains yeah. and everything. So tell me about the session. Like, were you guys, was it done pretty live? Like, yeah, totally really? live and just like real relaxed. Like those guys have made so many records and they were like, yeah, what are you guys feeling today? Just like, no, like no stress. Like guys that have made so many records that are so relaxed in the studio. And Ken Drummond was like on Who Will Save Your Soul. Just He's the reason that song ended up with that reggae beat and became like a radio staple on wow. alternative rock radio at the time. And so if you recall back then, like Nirvana and Pearl Jam, and then there was Candlebox and then um, all these bands that were like, you know, watered down, more grungy, grungy, till that got tired. And then all of a sudden it was... They were like ready for uh, female Fair. voices. Love Affair. Yeah. And so you had Sarah McLaughlin and um, Paula Cole and uh, Fiona Apple people. and all those people sort of came out of that scene. Yeah. yeah and they did Love Affair. And then next thing I knew, Jewel was on the cover of Time magazine. Time. <laughs> not just Rolling Stone. Yeah. And I was like, and then she was like, I was in the Rugburns and we were a trio at the end of our run. At first we were four piece. And then she goes, can the Rugburns just back me up? So wait, how did that all come together? Like, was oh, so me and so, Jewel, you, so you guys were in, in yeah San Diego or yeah we that? were in San Diego and then we fell in love, started dating, and then that whole thing. I was just like, she was just a girl playing in a coffee house, and I was in the Rugburns. Okay, and we were playing everywhere, but we were on um, the Bizarre Planet Records, which was a Zappa label. Oh. And so, like, Wild Man Fisher did our electronic press kit, and we were, like, our manager was uh, Herb Cohen, who was the guy that's on the cover of Tom Waits' Nighthawks at the Diner. They were putting out the Tom Waits, Lenny Bruce, um, Alice Cooper, Linda Ronstadt yeah. on Bazaar in the early days and all the Frank Zappa stuff. And so Herb Cohen saw the Rugburns play, and we were always kind of wild, and he was like, you guys are made for Bizarre Planet Records. And all these other San Diego bands were getting signed, but we got signed by an L.A. label. Okay, We had like a really weird career. And then we got signed by that label called Priority Records that did, uh, that was the alternative rock of NWA's label. Oh, okay. You know, NWA had Fuck the Police and yeah, all that. Yeah, and that was in the CNN building, downtown LA. And we would go in there and there'd be rappers that had just left, like with baseball bats that had busted up the office over money owed. Wow. And we'd go in there and we were just like this little indie rock band <laughs> called the Rugburns. But so... Jewel was like, I want to play like the Rugburns. Can can I come out? And she would come on the road. And I remember being in Cleveland. So did you guys all back her up as the like the Rugburns were her band? Yeah, for a, while? For a okay. little bit on a tour. And so we did like the Wiltern Theater, and we did some stuff in New York, yeah. and a tour. And it was the Rugburns, Jewel, and John Hagen, who's the cellist for Lyle Lovett. It was really weird. And then Jewel was like opening for. She opened for Liz Fair once at the Wiltern before Jewel started breaking big. And the next thing you know, when something breaks, to be a part of it is the weirdest feeling because it was almost like a star is born because the rug burns were bigger. And yeah. I was like getting drunk and all of a sudden she just <laughs> became this massive star was on the cover of these magazines. Like overnight or what was the, pro what, what it took? What it was, was it took a year of her schlepping it out. Yeah. And that's probably where the Vancouver. That's when happened. she was, I remember when she went up there and so she was schlepping it out on the road, working hard. Like they, they would go, you want to open for Peter Murphy? And she'd be like, who's Peter Murphy? And they're like, he was in Bauhaus. Yeah, I'll do it. And she would go out there barefoot, 
holy Levi's and like a, just a white tank top and just get out with her guitar and go, and it'd be all these goth kids. Mm-hmm. And I would be on the side stage watching this. And she would go, I just want you guys to know I believe in angels. And I'd be going, no, <laughs> you can't say that to these people. But honest to God, it worked. And I was like, it was so she just won them over. over the top sweet that goth kids would be crying. Mm. And she would end up getting like a standing ovation opening for Amazing. Peter Murphy. Yeah. And then once it broke, um, Who Will Save Your Soul was getting a lot of play. And then When You Were Meant For Me, which is a song me and Jewel wrote together. Once that broke, all bets were off because then it it shifted. It was just all over the. It rate. shifted that from was alternative rock radio to um, what they call at all alternative or pop AC or AC whatever hot AC. Yeah. Once you go to hot AC, you're almost cursed because you can't go back. Right. Once you go to hot AC, it's like you have COVID and nobody <laughs> wants you back in that other room again. Like it's yeah. almost. I watched how all this happened. It's like. Once you go to Hot AC, you get a different kind of music fan that listens to the radio and doesn't necessarily follow you for your whole career. Right. Like a Neil Young career. It's almost like you can go into Britney Spears land or something where it becomes so huge. So we were like, every once in a while we would get flown private and there was four tour buses, like a light show. We were selling out Red Rocks. All of a sudden, like surely it wasn't. It once you were that meant quickly. for me hit, yeah. it started just slowly changing. And I was with her watching it all happen. And then Holy she was shit. like, why don't you open all the shows? The rug burns broke up and then Rusted Root would go on first. Oh, yeah, I remember that band. I would go on in the middle, okay. like a rodeo clown for like 35 minutes. The tweener. Yeah, like a tweener <laughs> kind of thing. 35 minutes. And then, dude, I would sell, and I'm not even bullshitting you. Like 400 CDs a night. CDs. Because I would go out and do 35 minutes and it would kill. Because after Rusted Root would play, it would be something totally, now for something totally different. And I had like a 35 minute tight set down Mm -hmm. and I would go out. Just you. Just me alone, play. Had you done solo shows before? I had. Okay. Um, But I was still working on what I was doing. It's my balls dropped on that tour. (laughs) And then every once in a while, um, Brady Blade would come out in Tony Hall because the band by then became Tony Hall on bass and Tony Hall. She had Brady Blade touring? Brady Blade went everywhere with us. In fact, I just was talking to him two days ago. I bought him a hat that says Blade at the drum shop. Does he still live like in Sweden? Sweden. He met his wife on when we were in Sweden on tour. I was there the night he met her. Oh, that's why he lives there. I was always like, he's got kids. I was there that night. It was crazy. (laughs) Amazing. And so the band was Tony Hall, who was. He's the guy that played bass on the Bob Dylan album. Um, he he it's did not a dark bunch yet. of um, Lanois stuff. Yeah, think, the right? Lanois yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. And he was in the meters, funky meters, and yeah. now he's in dumpster funk. One of the best bass players ever. Yeah. Brady Blade on drums. Steve George was the keyboardist, and Steve George was in a band called Mr. Mister. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he's okay. the guy that wrote, Take These Broken Wings. <laughs> wow. And he also wrote, Kitty lays on in the way. Holy shit. Dude, one night, one of the best nights I ever had was in Sweden. And I think it was the night Brady Blade met his wife. Uh-huh. We came into the hotel, and we were always at, like, five-star, four-seasons hotels. We had people. Oh, and the electric guitarist was Doug Pettibone. <laughs> really? Yeah. So it was me, Doug Pettibone, Brady Blade. I was on a How does that guitar. band come together? Did the label say, like, here's a bunch of shit-hot musicians? Or did Jewel know them from something? 
the label and the producer of that record, Peter Collins, who produced, they they made "You Were Meant for Me" a single mm -hmm. because the one that was the, on the Ben Keith album, they wanted to like pop it out a little more. So they kept my guitar part and had oh. Flea play bass on it. And so really? Flea laid down this amazing bass line. Yeah. And that's so how, wait, th so this was a separate single that came out after the record came out. And this is even funnier. Sean Penn directed the first video yeah. of You Were Meant For Me, and it's stiffed. Is that the one that you're in? No. Because you're in that video, I'm in you? the second one. Now, what's <laughs> funny about it was, this is crazy. So she, I was dating Jewel, and then Sean Penn stole her from me and we went over to sean penn's house one night but it was a trailer it was like a, a airstream trailer it was after he him and madonna's house burned down in malibu okay it burned down so sean penn was living in this trailer so we were on the leno show so we leave the leno show we're in la and i think jewel was opening for liz fair sean penn's backstage because he was like obsessed with jewel so he comes backstage and goes hey you want to come over to my trailer and he had a broken nose. Like, I don't know what had happened to him. Got in some paparazzi fight or some yeah. shit. <laughs> so we go to his trailer and it's in Malibu, like on the water. So he starts playing me tapes that his friend David, um, you know, from David and David? Yeah. David Bayerwald. Oh, yeah, his yeah. His dad was like new CIA connection. So he was playing us tapes. And this is before big internet stuff of CIA shellings going on in Afghanistan and stuff. Jesus. And he's talking about when a flight's safe, when it takes off, what kind of car's the best engine? He's insane. He's doing blow, smoking weed. <laughs> and then I remember I go outside of the trailer and we're taking a piss side by side and I'm pissing next to Sean Penn. And I'm like, and I'd smoked some weed with him and I was like, I saw the future. I was like, holy shit. He's gonna steal my girlfriend. And so like, you I knew saw right the then. future. I was so stoned, <laughs> I could see the future. And then like, a few weeks later, he's flying Jewel and Jack Nicholson on a private jet to Cannes Film Festival. And then I call up in New York and then Sean Penn answers the phone and I go, Sean? And he goes, Steve? And I was like, oh man, it was it Jewel's happened. room. And then I was like really bummed. And so I was on back on the road with the Rugburns and every time we drove past a place that said Jewel Osco, I'd go, warn me if we're coming up on one of those. I can't see it. So I was like really sad. And then, and then Sean Penn directs the video for you were meant for me, but the video doesn't do well. So you, um, Who Will Save Your Soul was an alternative radio hit, but they mm -hmm. were trying to bring her to hot AC. So then Jules like, will you be in the video? I wanna redo it. So I'm like looking brokenhearted and sad you were meant for me. And I really was, wow. like I wasn't acting. Yeah. So I have my shirt off the video. Why does she ask video? you to do it? Well, cause we loved each other. Like I have okay. no, I love Jewel. Like yeah. she's like one of my best friends. Like to this day, we still talk all the time. But at that point, you were probably- At that time I was heartbroken. Right, okay. And, but everybody goes through heartache, sure. whatever. Yeah. It was Sean Penn. We always, my wife and I always do yeah, the same exactly. where we go, it was the eighties, it was a different time. <laughs> we do it for any type of, any bad thing that happens, we always go like, like shit today, everybody's offended by everything. Yeah. Me and Sharon always go, it was the 80s. It was a different time. We spoke differently. So, um, so Jewel is like, she she goes, will you be in the video? So I show up to be in the video. Yeah. The second go, video. The second video for you are meant for me. After crazy. Peter Collins re-records it. But then Peter Collins says, we want to keep your guitar part. We love it because you play these harmonics on it, mm. which end up coming into play later on that television show, The Office with okay. Steve Carell. So you know on You Were Meant For Me how it goes, do, 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 those harmonics. Yeah, like you were you. meant for me, but that's me. Okay. And I remember doing it and Ben Keith goes, what's that? 
when I did it, I was kind of scared. Yeah. And I go, oh, this is these harmonics. I don't have to do it. He goes, no, it's really cool. Do it again. I don't think you got it clear. And I go, you like it? I didn't know. You know, I was, it was a stray Gators, man. Yeah. So I was like, okay. So years later, that song gets used on an episode of The Office where these where a wedding band is covering You Were Meant For Me. Thank you very much monetarily. That's good. Mm -hmm. So they're covering You Were Meant For Me. And I was like, my friends were all calling me, dude, you got to turn on The Office. And the guitarist does the harmonics and Steve Carell gets kicked out of the wedding and he's sitting in the thinker's pose, just bummed out. And he can hear the song you remember me he's singing along with it. And it gets the guitar part that goes do, 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 do. And Steve Carell goes, boop, 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 boop. <laughs> and I was like, I just influenced television, man. <laughs> this shit's crazy, right? Wow. That's bananas. So, so they remake the video. She asked me to be in the video. Yeah. And then that video, they get Flea to play bass. So that video goes huge because Flea's an I amazing bass player. Like a lot of people. I know he is, yeah. Like I know you know this, but like sometimes people just think it's just boom, boom, boom. A bunch of sloppy, sloppy. He's so like, mm -hmm. he loves like um, Chet Baker and all this stuff. Like he's a real <laughs> jazz head. Yeah. So he plays bass on it. Now what's funny oh, about all this that's is. That's crazy. We go out to London and we do three nights sold out at Royal Albert Hall. So I get to open for Jewel at Royal Albert Hall. I think that I set a record that night. I think I sold like 500 CDs. Jesus. Like, cause I would go out and by then I would have the show so tight. So are you going out on tour bringing like 20,000 CDs with you? Dude, something? I'm going out on tour. They're bringing the CDs. Me and Doug Pettibone had this running joke. Jesus. We didn't even, we acted like we didn't know how to plug in our guitars. So we each had guitar techs. We had people handling our luggage, right? And then Holy there was shit. our guitar tech was this guy, Fai Yik. And Fai Yik was Bob Dylan's guitar tech for years. And when Bob wasn't on the road, he'd come out with us. He was the best guitar tech in the world. And so he would come hand me my guitars and I was using all different tunings because Jewel has a lot of open tuning songs. Yeah. So he would hand me my guitar sometimes and not plug the chord back in. And he would do it with Pettibone and me and Pettibone would be on stage at like the gorge in front of 10,000 people. Yeah. Jewel would be waiting for the song to kick in. We had this running <laughs> joke where we'd go. And it would be so funny and Jewel would be like secretly flipping us off that you fucking assholes. <laughs> then what we go, I'd go like this to Doug and he goes, oh, plug it in there. You know how it is when you're on the road so long? Like you, you don't gotta, give a you shit. You gotta find something funny and out Jewel there. And yeah. Jewel thought it was hilarious. And okay. so- well, That's like, good, that's dude, important. The thing with Jewel is she's one of the most beautiful, down to earth, gracious, great, she's just really cool, mm -hmm. very smart. And what I like most about her, I like people that have a work ethic. Yeah. So getting back to what you were talking about earlier, how do we handle all this? <laughs> how do we handle all this about? work that goes on? Yeah. And do we still like it? I love it. Even though I don't make money on Spotify, I don't get those mm -hmm. big royalty checks. What I love is I still get as excited today when an offer comes in for Haley, Idaho, or some small town, they go, it's it's a hundred persons. Yeah. It's like as close to as I'm, yes. Whereas most people, and my You're wife psyched. gets mad. She's like, yeah, this is gonna be a three hour drive from here. We gotta do this. <laughs> but me, yeah. I'm still as excited as I was when my dad had me play his air conditioning warehouse grand opening when I was like Amazing. 16 years old. Yeah. I'm still full of wonder what is gonna happen at the show? Because every show I play is different. I'm learning let's a talk, new song. Let's, yeah. let's talk about that. So how did you get to this place where you're able to like fully engage with the audience to the point where you, you're making up songs on the spot? Do you do that every night? Yeah. You do? I mean, no, I don't force it. Okay. If I'm in the mood, yeah. 
I might sometimes say, give me three words. Okay. <laughs> and I'll do it with just my guitar. Or other times I just make it up. What I like to do is do a sneaky made up song. So I'll be playing like a D chord and finger picking it after playing a beautiful song. Yeah. And then I'm looking at what's going on in the bar at that moment. And I slowly start singing a song, but it's about what's happening at that moment. And people are just like, what the fuck? Like a bottle drops. And then the bottle drops <laughs> off of the server's tray. There's some glass. We'll sweep it out of the way. And then I go back in this course. People are like, and then I talk about the people in the front row and what they're wearing. And it freaks people out. Yeah. Or I'll do it on beatboxing with my loop pedals and stuff. Yeah, and I'll yeah. make up a song. But yeah, I only do it when the mood strikes okay. me. So it's not like a thing that's like, I have it's no not taking list. over your life or anything. No, no, I don't even have to do it. Okay. I don't even play You Were Meant For Me a lot of times. Like yeah. I will sometimes. And people always freak out because that song has taken on more heft as the years have gone by, if that makes yeah. sense. Because yeah. my the age group of my audience now, that song means something special. Whereas when it first broke big, Rugburns fans hated me for it. Oh, you got a lot of flack for it? Oh, and when I went solo, I got a lot of flack because the really? Rugburns were doing songs like, Scott fucking line of Toronto, Scott fucking line of Toronto. And yeah. I was wearing a dress on stage. And then next thing you know, I put out this solo record and I'm like singing prettier songs, but still doing a weird show. But yeah. they were like, you know, they didn't want anything to do with that. But now, yeah. oh, time is amazing yeah. equalizer. After all these years, people <laughs> are like, even the hardcore punk rockers are like, oh my God, that song reminds me of this. Right. You know? <laughs> well, that's a long time ago. So do you, like, as a writer and as a composer, do you still make checks from that song? I guess you probably do, right? I do. Wow. I do. Amazing. Not huge, yeah. but I, I, it. Did it change your life, like, financially at the time? Like, back when it was, first came out and you're selling, like, 20 million records or whatever the hell it was? Yeah, it sold, like, 15 million records. It, what it did was it gave me, it was like getting an endowment from the arts. Amazing. So that I could go out and keep. I would have kept doing what I was doing anyways. Yeah. The funny thing is, is I didn't change anything. I stayed in the same apartment right on the beach for 25 years. I had an old Ford truck that was rusted. I would always rent a car for tours. And then I bought a Sprinter for a little while, sold it. But for the most part, I didn't change anything. I have my guitar. I just bring one guitar on the road. I didn't buy fancy clothes. I was still buying, wearing this. I'll... I tell audiences, get used to this outfit. This is for the whole <laughs> tour. Because everything with me is bringing merch. Yeah. So I wear the same jeans every night and just yeah. bring like a couple shirts, some T-shirts, and then go out on the road and do what I do. So I would do it the same. The money didn't change anything. Mm -hmm. It would, In fact, it all got taken away from me by the IRS. Really? Yeah, because I didn't pay taxes for like 10 years. Oh, my God. Like I got sober. And then after I got sober, I was like, it's good enough I got sober. I don't need to pay taxes. Yeah. And so I would come home every day, and I'll have these IRS notices, and I wouldn't open them. Oh, shit. And so I just let them stack up for years. And then I started seeing Sharon, my wife, and she's like, what the hell is this? I go, I don't know. I just don't want to open them. <laughs> and she goes, you need to – you always do this. You just run away from your troubles. You just act like it's not there. And I go, I know. And then finally the IRS showed up where I lived. These IRS agents, because I hadn't play, paid taxes in like 10 years. You hadn't filed anything? Or? Nothing. Yeah. And I had all these notices that I didn't even open. Yeah. And they showed up, IRS agents, and they were like, we're 
the IRS were here. Do you know, is this Steve Poltz's place? And I was just coming in from the beach and I went, I don't know. I'm just here surfing. And I ran. <laughs> I was so scared. I started running Holy shit. down to the beach. And then I was like, I called this guy who was the CEO of the Padres or the CFO, chief financial guy. He used to be the main guy on finances for the San Diego Padres. And, and I heard he liked my music. So I was like, I called him up. And then he's like, oh, yeah, I do my own accounting for him. I go, listen, I think I'm in trouble with the IRS. So I've never forgotten this. He goes, meet me at the Tilted Kilt. So the Tilted Kilt is like a Hooters, but it's like plaid skirt girls. Okay. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And I was like, the Tilted Kilt? It was in a mall like Holy in San Diego. Shit. So I met him at the Tilted Kilt. You can't make this shit up, man. No, I can't make this shit up. So I walk into the Tilted Kilt with a, a brown bag. And the brown bag has hundreds of envelopes in it from the IRS. And the bag's all wrinkly. Just You've some never opened a single off. one. I had never opened one. And I go, I think I'm in trouble. I haven't paid taxes in 10 years. And he goes. And you probably made a shit ton of money at some a point, lot. right? Yeah. And so he starts opening them. And in the meantime, the Tilt the Kilt girl's coming over. Can, did you want a French dip? You know, like this, taking my iced tea orders. And I'm just watching. And I remember, my, he's not saying a word. He's opening each one. And I kept going, is it bad? Is it bad? Is it bad? And he wouldn't say anything. And I just saw him open And these are going back up. years and years and years. Years. Oh, my God, And then he man. finally is done opening them all. And I've never forgotten this. He puts his hands on, his, on the table and he goes, well, I've seen worse. That's what he said. And I go, you have? You have? It made me feel better. Really? I go, like, a lot worse? He goes, not much, but a little worse. And then he, I go... What's it mean? And he, he grabbed my hand across the table and he goes, I've never forgotten this because it made me cry. He goes, we're going to get through this together. Wow. And I was like, this guy didn't even know me. Wow. But he said, we're going to get through this together. And I believed him. Mm-hmm. And I was like, we are? And I was like, can we make a deal? Because everybody's like, oh, you can make a deal with the IRS. If you owe this much, just make a deal. Mm-hmm. And this is what the IRS said. Not only will we not make a deal with Mr. Pultz, he's lucky he's not doing jail time. Wow. For willful negligence to pay taxes. Yeah. And the next thing I knew, two weeks later, $440,000 was taken out of my bank account. Just oh, gone. Shit. Disappeared overnight. Oh That's my how powerful the government is. And I had nothing. And you know what? Prior to that happening, I was like, I'm going to commit suicide. I was going to leave this money to my niece and nephew. I, I, I'm just going to die. I'm going to get the money out and give it to them. Oh, my God. And then man. once the money got taken out, it was like, I was so happy. That was it just was, like all the money you had or that was the amount that they It was all the money were, I had. They so they took just all took the all money your money. I had because I'd spent others. I'd yeah. sent my parents on Alaskan cruises. I'd bought some stuff. You know what I but mean? But that to them was like, we'll take all his money and then he's. Yeah, you're good. You're good. Wow. Like with back taxes and penalties. So they wow. took 440 grand. And Jesus, I remember man. it was like, I, it was, oh do you know what it was God. like? It was like somebody saying to me, do you want peace of mind? And me going, yeah, it'll cost you 440 grand and you can have peace of mind. And it would be going, really? Because I was so freaked out over it. I didn't even know I freaked out like the last year mm-hmm. prior to that happening. So it was like going, take all this money. And you can have peace of mind. I was like, cool. So I let them take all the money. Mm-hmm. And then I went, I can earn this again easy. Mm-hmm. And I just went back out and started playing because I'm a <laughs> real workhorse. Yeah. You know, up until I had a stroke. <laughs> so, But like, other than me having a stroke, like I just worked nonstop. This show is brought to you by the good folks at Isotope, who make incredible plug-in software for any music or dialogue recording situation. 
Among other things, they make a very unique suite of software called RX, which you can use to surgically repair almost any kind of issue in a recording. Whether it's removing electrical hum, unwanted noise, vocal plosives, or almost anything you can throw at it. I use Isotope RX on every mix in one way or another, and I love that I can get in there on guitar tracks that I'm doing and running through my crazy old tube amps and get rid of the hum and noise without affecting the actual tone of the guitar. You can buy their plugins outright or get a subscription to keep up to date on all their latest versions. Right now, they're offering listeners a 10% discount on any of their plugins when you use the code SOULPOD10 at checkout. So head on over to isotope.com slash soulpod, and you'll see the links right there to get the discount or an extended 30-day trial of their subscription service of Music Production Suite Pro. We're also brought to you this season by Black Mountain Picks. These are unique spring-loaded thumb picks that are super comfortable and adaptable. I've been using them for a couple years now, and I absolutely love them. They come in medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and with regular or extra-tight spring tension. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. Also thanks to Ear Trumpet Labs, a workshop in Portland, Oregon, hand-building amazing-sounding microphones. These large diaphragm condensers combine state-of-the-art sound with eye-catching designs and the feedback control to excel live as well as in the studio. I am using their Edwina myself right now on this podcast. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com. And finally, the Hen House Hang. It's a four-day immersive recording experience right here with me at the Hen House Studio in East Nashville on September 19 to 22, 2022. Join us for a musical learning experience like no other. We'll put you up in a groovy hotel, feed you some glorious food, show you the ropes of recording roots and Americana music by bringing you in on a real session with real musicians working on real songs from the ground up. You can get all the info on that at stevedawson.ca. Just follow the links on the front page to the Hen House Hang. All right, then, let's get back to the show. How, like, what is your comfort zone for solo shows? Like, what, how many are you doing a year? Up, well, up until if like, I wasn't married, like, she keeps it. She does. Sharon keeps it. Okay. She yeah. gets mad about it. Yeah. If it, I tried to get my agent to book me 365 shows in a year, <laughs> and I wanted to call it the 365 Project, but it had to be in a different city every night. He's like, I won't do it. He refused <laughs> to do it because he said, you'll die. You've already had a stroke. And I was like, I don't care. I could do 365 gigs in a year. It'll be really cool. I'll document it. But he's like, you're crazy, which I am, and I know it. But- so I try to do like 150, keep okay. it low. But I have I you can, have you always done that many? Always. Is there a chance that you've done more gigs than anyone on the planet? Could be. Like I was doing two when I was in the Rugburns. I remember at one point I looked at our bass player John Castro, who I'm still really good friends with, and I said, "Dude, how many days has this run been?" that we've been drunk every night and played a show every night in a row. And we started looking at a calendar because it was before iPhones. And we were like 88 straight shows. Holy not shit. Not being home. And we'd done mushrooms almost every night and drunk or done coke. And I was looking at them that night. And I remember we were both oh so God. high on shrooms that night. I've never forgotten this. And Stinky, our drummer, was back. We all shared the same Stinky. hotel room. Stinky was the drummer. And he was back in the hotel room. And... I remember I looked at John Castro that night and I was like, I just want to make out with you. And he was like, I want to make out with you. And I remember we kissed. I was like, what is, this is not even real. Is anything real? And I was like, we professed our love for each other that night. Wow. And then we ran into the room where Stinky was and we all wrestled and broke a table and just, just like. Rock and roll, baby. It was so, we did. Yeah, I think I've done more shows than anybody because the stuff with Jewel was going nonstop prior to Jewel. But like, also like people rooms, like. 
you know, of, of your age have done, you know, like have had long careers like you, but in general, most of them like scaled her down a little bit when they yeah, get. Yeah, <laughs> or they would only tour to support a record and go, okay, I toured. It was two months. But you seem to year. be like ramping it up. I'm ramping it up. I, the way I look at it is this. I get so excited for the shows. Last night I played at Eastside Bowl. I still get so excited going, oh my God, I get to go play this show. I get to How? play this Why? festival. I need What's going on in your brain to make you feel like that? I need people to clap for me. Okay. <laughs> no. What it is is I really like making an audience happy. Like it's but so do you fun. like it that much that the touring part, which is generally the part that people burn out on, like the getting from A to B and the getting on a plane and dealing with the fucking hotel and all that stuff, does that not take its toll on you? No, I really like talking to like servers at Waffle House. Like I like, <laughs> and I love um, people love that, that clean answer. rooms, yeah. like in hotels. Like I like talking to the maid and then leaving and handing them a $20 bill and having them go, whoa. So you don't, th you don't feel like touring is a grind at all. You just love every minute of it. Yeah. I like making people happy. Like I really love talking to like, I'm not kidding you. Like the person who's clearing the dishes from the table, mm -hmm. I like asking them, Hey, have you seen any good movies lately? <laughs> I feel like people a lot of times don't ask people questions. Yeah. And people want to talk. And so I engage anybody. And I love finding some cool coffee house on the road or some cool restaurant. And what is this place famous for? And then talking to the sound engineer, mm -hmm. doing it that night. Um, talking to other musicians. I don't really go to music stores. You know, some people are yeah. like, do it. That's that's what I, that's how yeah, I Yeah, I don't do that because I just bring this one guitar, Smokey Joe, because Smokey Joe knows if I go to a music store and Smokey Joe, when I come back to the room, is like, were you just touching a Martin? You can smell it. Yeah, let me smell your fingers. <laughs> were, were you playing a Gibson? And so I got this guitar and that's all I need is one yep. guitar. I don't yeah. want another guitar. Right. My whole thing is about, can I play this around a campfire? Uh -huh. And can I make people smile? Yeah. And there's something, I get an energy out of making an audience smile and making them do shit they normally wouldn't do. Like what? Like, some people are uncomfortable with the whole idea of even singing along to something. And I know that. Yeah. So I don't force them to, but I like bringing them asking them a question in the middle of my show and then making that turn into a line in a song later and telling them you didn't even know you were a songwriter. Like I like to, That's cool, I like to inspire people and I like yeah. to say, do you realize you have a choice every day, how you wake up, how you want to face the day? Do you realize you can create things and how happy it will make you to play? And so I'll interview somebody from the stage sometimes and that'll turn into a song. <laughs> You're a songwriter. Everybody is, everybody can create. And so I feel like it's more, it's not really like I'm a folk singer, I'm a motivational speaker. Mm -hmm. Like I'm going out and I really feel like it spreads goodwill and it feels good to spread goodwill yeah. and it makes me happy. So it gives me energy, but my wife hates it. She does? <laughs> oh, she hates the road. Yeah, yeah. so we're constantly, um, D does she come with you all the time? Or? Everywhere. Yeah, she she's my okay. tour manager. Okay. But sometimes now she's just going, I'm staying 
really? I'm not going on this one. Like How, she didn't come to Canada. I was just in Newfoundland. Like she's just, are you crazy? Why would you go to Newfoundland? Like, cause I'll be in Halifax three nights sold out at the Carlton. Yeah. And I'll go, well, if I'm this close, I'm going to go to Newfoundland. She's like, but you got to take a flight. That's you not close do this. At all. There's no money to be made in Newfoundland. <laughs> I'm always like, it's not about the money. It's about the, it's about the vibe, the fun, the crack, as they say in Ireland, how's the crack? <laughs> you know, that word crack, C-R-A-I-C. It's so funny. Like what's the crack like? And that's the reason I take gigs for the crack. And so I go there. Like you have three reasons really to take a gig. Is it a good hang? Is it going to advance your career? Like you're getting on a stage in front mm -hmm. of a lot of people, or yeah. is it just a money grab? A shit ton of money. Yeah. I had a money grab once where I got 10 grand to play 15 minutes for the Whoa. Toronto Blue Jays at a black tie silent auction. Oh, God. And that I 15 minutes, that everybody was talking through it. There's nothing silent about that auction. <laughs> Uh, about that auction. It was like the clock was going backwards, like Ferris Bueller's day off when he's in class. I had to go back to the hotel to watch the scent of horror off of me after that gig. I was like, I would rather get paid a hundred dollars. Well, at least you could use a thousand dollar bill to wipe it off. With yeah, you. exactly. <laughs> oh my God. But yeah. So there's all these reasons to take shows, but I'm still, that's why I don't complain about Spotify or anything. Mm -hmm. I just use these materials, like yeah. I like writing on Instagram. Mm -hmm. I love writing weird captions. Mm -hmm. I can it's, tell. You're, it's creative. It is. It's very fun. And my mom was an English teacher. And so. Do you have a Canadian parent? What's your. Both of them. They're both Canadians. Yes. I was born in Halifax. So okay. I'm a dual citizen. Okay. So I was raised very Canadian. My mom. But you didn't spend much time no, there as a kid. You my were, mom taught okay. um, English in Montreal, but she's a Cape Bretoner. Oh, and okay. so I come from a long line of the Cape Bretoners, and her dad was a fiddler and made um, bootleg whiskey in Cape Breton. Cool. And her mom, her mom and dad were drunks. They were alcoholics, and they mm -hmm. were in and out of jail. And my grandpa was missing fingers, and he would make his own whiskey. He was the seventh son of a seventh son and would take my mom to funerals because he'd get free booze. And my mom's memories were just of them in and out of jail and oh drunk. And so she just was horrified by that and went to Montreal to teach English. My dad was born in Winnipeg but grew up in Kingsville, Ontario. Wow. And then was stationed out at Greenwood for Air Force Base in Nova Scotia. And then he met my mom in Montreal. They were getting the plane overhauled and then... I was born in the infirmary to the Sisters of Charity okay. in, on February 19th, in Hal 1960 in Halifax. Wow. And so we would go back in the summers. And so all my relatives are Canadian. They're you Cape still Bretoners. have a ton of... I was just with them all. Like okay, we had a okay. huge dinner when I was out there playing. And they all show up. They have kids now. So my dad always rooted for Canada in the Olympics. Everything was Canada. Like when I would wake up in the morning, he would be like, oh, Canada, really? our home and native land, true patriot love. You're making me want to stand up right now. <laughs> With glowing hearts we see the rise of the true, true no strong, strong and free. free. Dun, dun, dun. From far and wide, oh, Canada, we stand mm -hmm. on guard for thee. <laughs> oh, yeah. So he would sing that. So I was raised very Canadian. And my mom was a taskmaster about school. You had to, uh, an A minus was failing right. to her and it was she was always like if you're going to write you have to remember this who was there what happened and how did it make you feel uh -huh. and then she was she suffered from depression and I would play classical guitar as a kid that's what I learned when I was six really? I started playing classical guitar and took lessons because I went to see Julian Bream at the Hollywood Bowl oh shit and I was like he blew my mind and my I uncle I had this gay uncle Louis who's now dead he was from Cape Breton a genius piano player uh -huh. and he was like you need to learn classical guitar so we'd have a teacher come over to the house so I played guitar since I was six okay and I don't ever remember not playing yeah 
and I just play. Were you learning off records or something, or what was your process for learning guitar? I would sight read stuff like yeah. Box Beret and all this stuff, and I would learn all those things. Yeah, and then I went over to this girl's house. I thought I was going to lose my virginity one night. And her name was Hallie Rothstein. And her dad was a chemistry teacher. And my mom was like, you can't date a Jewish girl. They'll never accept you. You can't go out with a Jewish girl. And of course, Hallie Rothstein was beautiful. Just total Israeli, like everything, curly hair. Uh -huh. And I was like, so I snuck into her house. Her dad was out for the night. And I snuck in. And it's kind of funny because um, I, I was only in ninth grade. And I rode my bike to the liquor store and they were like, there's this old man there that um, he might try to grab your leg, but he'll buy you a <laughs> bottle of wine. And so I remember I had this whole so dilemma. Do I let the old man grab my, rub my leg? And then do I bring up in a bottle of Boone's Farm wine? Cause I need a bottle of Boone's Farm wine to go over to Hallie Rothstein's house. Cause I want to lose my virginity to Hallie Rothstein, of yeah. course. And so the old man, I was like, fuck, what do I do? And I was like, I'll just, Close my eyes. So I remember I go over to the liquor store and the old man's rubbing my leg. I go, can you get me a bottle of Boone's Farm wine? And then I remember riding on a bike with a bottle of wine and a brown paper bag and I crawl in her window. Uh -huh. And then we start making out. And then um, she get, has to get up to change the record. And I remember she was letting me undo like the first couple buttons of her Levi's. You know, like you're trying so hard. It's like, <laughs> you want the Levi's buttons to pop open. I just put my hand down and she pulled my hand back up put it on her breast. We'd be making out. We both had braces and we were like <laughs> the smell of dried saliva and everything. We're making out. And then she goes, I got to change the record. So she, cause back then you couldn't just put an iPod on shuffle. This is what kept you from getting in a yeah. lot of trouble. So she gets up to change the record and she puts on this record and I hear this voice go moving in silent desperation, mm -hmm. keeping an eye on the Holy land, a hypothetical destination. Say, who is this walking man? And I remember I was like, who's that? And she goes, James Taylor. And I go, can I borrow this record? She goes, what? You're going to go? And I go, yeah. And I grabbed the record. And I remember going home and reading like Russell Kunkel, Leland Sklar, <laughs> Danny Korchmar, all the people, you know, Peter Asher, everything that, that happened on that record. And I was like learning to finger pick those songs. Yeah. And then years later, I got a record deal with um, Mercury Universal Records. I got this huge record deal, like a big advance. And then Timothy White, who's now deceased, was the editor of Billboard magazine, was like, I'm doing an article on people that were might have been influenced by James Taylor. He called me up to see if I had a quote about, did I like James Taylor? And I go, do I like James Taylor? He kept me from getting laid. And he goes, what do you mean? I told him the story about how like the old man grabbed my leg and I was making out with this Jewish girl and how I didn't lose my virginity because of James. And he goes, man, I got to call up James right now. He's one of my best friends. Can, He'll love that. Can, can you tell him the story? And I go, really? really? So if you picture it, it's like Doris Day pillow talk, like a split screen with uh -huh. three people on phones. So James Taylor was in uh, Martha's Vineyard and Timothy White was in New York and I was in San Diego. And he goes, before James got on, he goes, Steve, tell James the story, but don't tell him the part about the old man. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too 
like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. That'll, that'll gross him out. And so I got, I was like so nervous. And so we get on the phone, it's like a split screen. And then I, he goes, yeah, Steve, I got James on the line. And I hear James Taylor go, Holy shit. hello, Steve. <laughs> Tell me your story. And then for some reason out of the blue, I go, I let an old man grab my balls. Like, I was so fucking nervous. And then, I tell him the whole story about making out with Hallie Rothstein and not losing my virginity. He's laughing so hard. And then after the whole story ends, he goes, well, I hope you've gotten laid soon. <laughs> and that was my whole conversation with him. Oh, my, my God, only man. Talk with him. It's so funny. <laughs> oh, man. What's in this coffee meth? <laughs> I think so. What are we Holy talking shit. about? I don't even know anymore. Does it matter? <laughs> no, it doesn't, does it? Shit, I don't even know. We can talk about um, making records, writing songs. Yeah, I would like to know as far as, you know, your process of, of writing songs. Like, it seems like you're able to do it so fast and so, like, you can just pull shit out of the air and you do it regularly when you're writing for a, a, a song for a record or maybe it's not like that maybe you're not writing songs for a record because i guess you've got this weekly thing where you've got to write a song yeah but how do you like well where... like billy strings texted me lyrics for his new record for this song that i have on it called leaders it's mm -hmm. the last song i think it's track 16 on his record or your yeah record? his new record oh, okay, that just cool. came out yeah so he texted me some lyrics here's an example of how i write songs so billy texts me and goes, hey, I just shit out these lyrics, see if you can do anything with it. Uh -huh. And so then I didn't, I go, I go, I'm not gonna change one lyric, I just like it, it's like a puzzle to me. Yeah. So I go, I'll write all the melody to it. So- Have you if, done that much? A little bit, okay. I love a challenge. Yeah, yeah. Like I really believe I can do anything. That's the thing, like my dad taught me that. I truly believe there's nothing I can't do. And so, Billy sends me that, and I'm like, I'm not going to touch the lyrics. I'm going to just put music to it. He's got nothing. There's no music involved. No music it's at all. So wait, if you were to hear it, I can play you the voice memo of me writing melody to these lyrics. And I can, you can make this part of your podcast if you want. Let's I, hear it. You I'll have find it? it on the, okay. and let me look at my text thread with them. Okay. So, and you could put this on your podcast. Um, so, so he goes, let me find Billy's strings. So he goes, so he sends me a screenshot of lyrics and then I sit down and um, yeah, so he goes, here it is. So he goes. Just a handwritten screenshot. Yeah, okay. of handwritten lyrics. And he goes, that's, that's that little thing I woke up and puked up the other day. I hope you can read it. <laughs> I go, cool. I go, you want me to mess with it? And he goes, sure. So I'm looking at his lyrics and yeah. it says, we're not the leaders anymore. We're not believers anymore. We've got to find another door. We're not the leaders anymore. Where are the children left to play? Let mother nature lead the way. We're gonna need, we're gonna need love someday. Where are the children left to play? So I was like, oh cool, he's got a song there, it stanzas. I'm not even gonna mess with that because a mm -hmm. lot of times I love lyrics. I have yep. no problem with lyrics, but I love melodies. Yeah. So I was like, oh cool. So then I sit down and send him I go, here's an idea, that's all. It's just an idea. So.
So that's that. Yeah. And so then he Beautiful. ends up going. Love that, man. That's great. Thank you. So he goes, and I thought we he was doing a different song we wrote called Don't Crash That Car. So my manager calls me up. He goes, oh, congratulations. You got a song on Billy's new album. I go, oh, Don't Crash That Car? He goes, no. I think it's called Leaders. And I go, Leaders? I don't even remember writing it. I don't even know what he's talking <laughs> about. And I go, and then I, I finally, then Billy texts me from the studio. He goes, I'm recording our song. And then I heard the beginning. I was like, did I write that? <laughs> I didn't even know. And I was looking back over all text threads. And that's how it happened. So then here's his. Oh, wow. It's, he really took what you sent him. Wow, that's amazing. So he did. It's like no for no. And it was note. really cool because it was like the old days where one would write melody. Yeah. And one would write lyrics, like yeah. Andrew, Wade Lever, Andrew Lloyd Webber. I do that nice. sometimes. I actually love that. I prefer that process, actually. His voice is so good. Mm. Isn't that cool? That's super cool. I'll just do this chorus and one verse. So it's cool when I see his set list up in front of thousands of people and, he, and I see leaders in it. Yeah. So I'm going to sit in with him this Friday at Marathon Music Works. Oh, cool. And be one of his special guests. Yeah. But um, so like if I write with people, sometimes usually what I like to do is be in the same room, mm -hmm. but there's no rules. Do you do that a lot? Yeah. If somebody wants to, I'll write yeah. with anyone. Yeah. Um, there's no rules. It's like. Like when I write with Molly Tuttle, sometimes she'll come over and we'll write and I'll go, hey, I have this idea on guitar. Mm -hmm. And then we'll start doing it and scribble it down. In fact, she just, she and Ketch just recorded, Ketch Secord from yep. Olcro just Old recorded Crow. a song I wrote with Molly called, I call it Over the Top for You. And then she wrote it, Ketch came in and rewrote a verse and took part percentage of that song. Oh, yeah. That old, that old gag. <laughs> yeah, that old gag. And they did it over the line for you. And that song was okay. influenced by me going to Newfoundland because in Newfoundland they say, oh, Trout, I dies for you. Uh -huh. and, and and if you make them laugh, it's I dies at you. And in Newfoundland they're like, who the frig net you by? Like, who are your parents? <laughs> yeah. My mother did it. My father helped. So I spent a lot of time in Newfoundland. I love Clearly. it. It's one of my yeah. favorite places. So I told Molly when we write this, I want to say, I dies for you. Oh, my love, I dies for you. Uh -huh. They changed a couple of things, but I recorded it on my record I made with Will Kimbrough. And then... Um, Which record is that? That's called Shine On. Okay, the last one. Yeah. Cool. And then um, she just re-recorded that. But like, I'll write a song with like Sierra Hull and yeah. we'll sit down together. Yeah. But then sometimes I'll just, somebody will send me music. Yeah. Which I love. And you just go to town. That's like, 
I can write lyrics to anything. Okay. And I'll just like spit out. I can write 15 verses. And will, just, will you pull from something? Like, do you have books and books full of stuff from years? No, or just off just, the top of my head. Always, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and then a rhyming dictionary sometimes I'll look if I'm stuck. Oh, yeah. I was listening to a great interview with Stephen Sondheim, uh, three parts, uh, Terry Gross. Yeah. And I love it that he used one. So if I'm ever stuck, I will sometimes look up a rhyme and think, oh, that makes me think of a whole nother left turn. Right. That's interesting. It doesn't just get you out of that jam, but it might open a, new, a whole new door. Yeah. But I yeah. love writing with somebody else, too, because no idea is off limits to me. Mm -hmm. And Jewel used to always say to me, we're not going to pulsarize this song, meaning like <laughs> have somebody take a shit in the middle of it, which I, I, I will have anybody do anything in a song. You know, like there's no censoring me when it comes to a song. Mm -hmm. I think a song is just a song. I, I feel like in some ways in our society right now, like there's this whole idea that you can't write a book unless you're like the Oprah book, yeah. American Dirt or something like you have to, everything that JK Rowling is like getting mad about and everybody's signing off on. I feel like when you write a song, it's just a song. And if you don't like it, don't listen to it. It's right. like... I don't want to be censored. I love sitting down and just spitting out words. And I'm not that married to the words. So if somebody, if I'm writing with somebody I'm like, and they're not into it and not feeling it, I'm like, cool, let's take this direction. I'm not stubborn at all. Yeah. One thing I've learned is there's a million ways to just to do this. And you might think you have the best way. I remember when I had my record deal with Mercury and Danny Korchmar was going to produce a record, which Amazing. I still kind of regret. I had lunch with him. But I ended up having Stephen Souls do it, who was in the Rolling Thunder Review with yeah. Dylan, and he was with T-Bone Burnett in the Alpha Band, mm -hmm. which I, I don't have regrets about that. I loved working with Stephen Souls, and I had Jerry Sheff on bass, had Leland Sklar on bass, had Jim Keltner <laughs> on drums, Keltner <laughs> of all people. Oh, my God. And so, but Danny Korchmar had lunch with me and wanted to do the record, and he said, you know, I'm going to go over your lyrics. And this I'm is like, your first record. Yeah, the first major label yeah. one as a solo artist after yeah. Rugburns. And I remember he said, I might want to change some of your lyrics. And I was like, I took umbrage to that. I've that never was, forgotten this. So that was like the undoing of the of him producing it? That's you what like, stopped me from doing it. Because he said, I had a line. On this, this is, I tell this story on stage. So I have this song called Kicking Distance. Mm -hmm. And the chorus goes, because I'm within kicking distance of your heart. You know, like in football, you're within kicking distance mm -hmm. of winning the game. Yeah. So he was like, I love that. But you have a line in here I would want to change. And I go, and I remember I was like, what line? And this makes me laugh so hard because what was I thinking anyways? So, and the line goes, what started out so simple has turned into a pimple, unsightly and sore to the touch. It's but nice peace line. in my mind has been so hard to find and you've become more than a crutch. So it's a cool line, I thought, but he was like, that pimple just stands out. No. Oh, come we'd on. We'd have to change that. And I remember I was like, I didn't say anything because I'm Canadian uh -huh. and we don't like to upset people, uh -huh. you know? I'm kind of Canadian. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah. So I didn't say anything, but I went, I'm not working with that guy. I'm not yeah. changing that line. And, and then I was thinking, maybe there would have been a better line. What was wrong with me? Like, why did I think if I wrote it, it was sacrosanct? Like, it was this scripture. Yeah. And it's not. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like the best lesson I learned and what I love about being older is 
I don't take myself so seriously. None of this matters. Right. My mom and dad are dead. Like I'm next in line. How do I want to spend my time? I want to spend it seriously engaging with people. When I go to ugly mugs and somebody makes my coffee, I want to bring them joy. Like that's all I can really do. And when I play a show, fuck man, I go out on stage. I never know what I'm opening with. I walk out. You never do a set list. Never. I've never written one. When yeah. I do mountain stage, never. With NPR, uh, not even with the rug burns. Never. Wow. When I do mountain stage with NPR, they go. They always want to know what three songs <laughs> I'm doing. I'm like, I don't know. And they go, What do you mean you don't know? I go, I won't know till I get out there. And they've learned to not question me right, now. Right. When I was in the rug burns. I would lead in every song and they would have to know the opening chords. We had so many songs, like yeah. songs that are long forgotten, you know? I remember I wrote one with Jewel called Food Stamp Love and I thought that was the hit. It mm -hmm. was about a lover doling out the food like it was the love, like it was food stamps, a government assistant program, like a shitty yeah, yeah. boyfriend or girlfriend. <laughs> and it's called, um, I'm sick of your food stamp love. And I we brought that back and I remember Atlantic Records because she got this deal. Uh -huh. She had said to me, what should I do to get, to get a following like you have, Steve? And I was like, for you, don't play a bar. Let's find a coffee house. So we drove around San Diego and I go, but find a coffee house nobody's playing in and make it your own. I really believe when you make it your own, because that's what the Rugburns did. We found Kelly's Pub and made it our own. They just had nothing going on. And I go, let's find a cool place down near the beach. So we found the Interchange Coffee House. And that was her beginning. Okay. And I go, play there every Thursday night and never break your residency. Do it for a year. And by the end of that year, Tommy Mottola was showing up. Wow. Danny Goldberg was showing up. And it was when record deals were out there and there'd be a line to get in. You nailed it. And it was because she had this raw talent. She would get out there and just like, she had that thing, the same thing Jason Mraz had. I watched it happen both out of San Diego. Happened with, oh, Jason with Jason too. I watched him blow oh, yeah. up huge. I didn't have anything to do with that like I did with Jewel, but yeah. I watched it happen with yeah. Jason. He, like he used to come to my shows and I would call him up. And you go guys get, are old buddies. Play a song. I wouldn't say we're buddies. He's had, I've been to his studio recently. I had my dad record a poems there before he died. Mm. My dad's spoken word and he played on my quarantine blues mm -hmm. single. He played keys. Oh, cool. So I know him, but I wouldn't say we're buddy, buddy. But I love him. Freaking great. Yeah, the guy's like his voice is an instrument. It is insane. Yeah. 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 So what I love about this is getting together with somebody and having a blank slate and going, what are we going to come up with? I would love to go into the studio with somebody sometime and just go, let's write the whole record in the mm -hmm. studio. That's 10 a, songs. That's an interesting process. I've too. never done that. It's funny that you say that because a lot of people that I know that do the co-writing thing, they are always like, you got to come in with like a fully formed idea or else it's going to be super awkward and weird in a co-write situation. Whereas you're saying just come in like with your mind open and nothing. I think you can come in with an idea and what, like how they say in Nashville, if somebody's not in it, they, instead of saying, I don't like that, they go, what else you got? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that, you know, <laughs> and uh, what else you got? And so, and I don't mind when somebody doesn't like something. My feelings, I used, my feelings used to get hurt. Like I was very sensitive. Yeah. If somebody would come up to me after a show and say something like, my wife hates your music, but I love it. <laughs> you know, like people think they're complimenting What's wrong you? with your wife? Yeah, all I would think all night was, why does his wife hate me? <laughs> or it'd be the other way around. The wife would say, my husband hates your music. Or everybody, like all the Rugburns fans hate your solo record on Mercury. You're Jeez. mocking it. And that hurts. Yeah, man. But after you so many that. years of that happening, 
I used to have a voice in my head where I'd go out on stage to perform and I'd think, God, that couple in the front row hates me. They hate me. I I totally have that voice in my head. <laughs> I finally got rid of it, but how? it took the 10,000 hours. I've done 10,000 hours. It finally left. You know how it left me? How? I became such an idiot that I couldn't take it any lower. And I said, I don't fucking care. I'll Sometimes I go out and purposely sabotage the beginning of my show and really take a risk. Like, I've come out before and gone, I'm just going to come out and play Britney Spears, Hit Me Baby One More Time, but not not play it. Play the recording and dance to it. Like, as my opening. Wow. Or I'm going to come out. I do another thing where I go... I'm not gonna play guitar for the first 15 minutes. So I walk out with my guitar, I set it down, take the mic off the stand and I walk around and I start ad-libbing on what I did that day. <laughs> and I might have like some story built in that I know yeah. is flushed out pretty good. But I go, thanks a lot, good night. And then walk off the stage and everybody's <laughs> laughing so hard. And then I come out and grab the guitar. Like I'll say, I hate music, it's all noise, good night. <laughs> and then I need to do something because I need the drug. And yeah. what it is, is your body makes a drug. And so when you're on stage, I need a fear of failure because it's an adrenaline rush. And I'm an adrenaline junkie. The okay. same way somebody jumps out of a plane. I'm going out do every you, do night. Do you get nervous? No, I get sight. Okay. And I get, I feel like I'm going to go out and own this crowd. But I might fuck with them at the beginning. <laughs> I'm fearless, so yeah. I walk out. I used to get really scared. You I did. used to get so scared, my hands would shake, and I'd go, I could play this perfectly at home, but I can't play it in front of these people. I struggle with that all the time. Yeah, it's hard. Mm -hmm. Now, I walk out, and I'm like... I can't, I can't predict it. Sometimes I'll be playing a big gig in front of a bunch of people, and there's no issue. I'll just walk out like nothing's happening. It's no problem. And then I'll play it to a little bar with 30 people in it, and I'll be freaking out. You know what I've learned? Try this next time, and you may have already done this. Tell them that's what you're feeling. Really? Yeah, to say, to give that fear of yours a spotlight and go, I got to tell you, I am so, because I've, I've done this before, yeah. I'm so nervous right now. Really? And I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah. But I know, I just played another show and I did it good, but I'm freaking out and I don't like it. <laughs> and I hate it that I'm doing this and I don't know how to get rid of it. And the audience is laughing because it's really meta yeah. what's happening. You're like really in the moment. Yeah. And by doing that, you sort of face the fear down. And by putting that fear front and center, it doesn't have, I, I feel like you take the power away from it. Amazing. Take the power of the fear away because fear is just an emotion. It's not real. I never used to have this issue and it's developed as I've, Gone, like for solo or with a band either usually with a band i'm way more it's it's less pressure but if it's just you solo yeah or my band or something like it depends on what the situation yeah. is yeah but sometimes it's just like almost crippling do you but think i never it's used coffee? to have that no okay do you think something happened that day no i just it's weird is it like an anxiety yeah it's sort of like a self doubt kind of yeah. anxiety thing. I don't know. I don't think it's that unusual. Like I, I know oh, it's not. That, that I'm just that, wondering but. where does it come from? Because I try to analyze these things sometimes. Yeah. Is it really, is it real? And where does it come from? Because sometimes I've had too much coffee and I've gone, man, I can't do that. Right. Or like if you were to eat an edible. Right. Yeah, like, no, there's nothing like, there's nothing like physically yeah. going on. It's all upstairs for sure. I just find it interesting that you've sort of like faced that and overcome it and now you just 
it's not an issue. It's cool. I walk. What I do is before I go out on stage every show, I say a prayer, uh-huh. and it's just really quick. And all I do is I thank the powers that be, whatever it is, because yeah. I was raised very Catholic. Right. So I was raised with like a fear of God, and I was an altar boy, and religion has always played heavily into my show or anything I'm doing. I like I'm too scared not to believe in God. <laughs> like I'm so brainwashed. <laughs> like if I'm on the road and I see a Catholic church, I'll definitely go inside, stick my finger in the holy water, make the sign of the cross, really? and sit down and say a prayer. Even though all my friends are atheists and I know it's bullshit. <laughs> Even my mom said to me on her deathbed, I was like, You want me to call the priest? I became like an eight-year-old again. She was like, It's all bullshit. Really? Yeah, she's like got started reading Christopher Hitchens and smoking weed and shit. And so I was like, but in me, I I I still have this thing about God. Yeah. And so what I do is I say a prayer to whatever the power is, this energy. And all it is, it's not a prayer to be good. It's a prayer of gratitude. So I just go really quick. I go, thank you for giving me these amazing gifts I have. Help me go out and let people forget about how shitty life can be. Because I know a lot of these fucking people had to get like, a babysitter to take the night off, or they might have tax problems, or they might be struggling with addiction issues. Just let me take them on a 90 minute vacation and bring them joy. And if I do that, then I walk and I picture, then my dad- It's like a Zen moment for you. Yeah, my dad taught me how to do this. He said, Steve, imagine what it feels like. He would go, shut your eyes. Imagine what it feels like at the end of the show. What are you doing? And I go, I'm holding my guitar. He goes, are you holding it up? I go, yeah. My, both my hands are over my head and my guitar's over my head. He goes, imagine everybody on their feet smiling and clapping. Visualize it with the audience before you go out there. I'm telling you, nine times out of That's ten, cool. I end up with the audience on their feet going, yes, because I've already seen it happen. But I had to learn that from right. doing it over and over. Yep. And there's muscle memory in that. And I had to play a lot of shows. Like you said, you probably played more shows than anybody. Maybe that's all it is. The more I play, the better I get. And if I, I hate it when I have like a month off, which mm-hmm. I've had before, the first show back, I'm like, my voice sounds really honky. Like really? honky, not you really like honky, it. but like yeah. a horn honking. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have that worn in feel. Yeah. And my chops are a little off. And I'm a little kind of nervous. And I do then say, God, I hate it when I've had this much time off. You guys are bumming because you're getting the worst show of the tour because it's the first one. I'm going to be so much better tomorrow night. Sorry. And I'll do that. And that makes them laugh sore because it's real. Yeah. And then I always do this thing at my shows where I'll go in the middle. I'll go, I thought this was going to be a bad show. I do this every show. I go, this is the greatest show I've ever played in my life. And then I'll tell the audience, don't ever come see me again. If I see you, I'll kick you out because I can never be as good as I am right now. So please don't ever come back and see me again because I'll just let you down and I can't deal with letting you down. So just enjoy the moment we have tonight yeah. and go fuck yourselves. Like shit like that, I love. Oh, man. like really- It's hard to pull that off, though. You have to be Steve Poltz to pull that off. <laughs> Well, everybody has their own way. What I would like to do, I would like to have a performance school where I work with a songwriter Mm -hmm. on their show. Mm -hmm. So I go, I'm noticing this song's really working. This one, 
I don't think is working as well. How can we make it work better? Don't just give up on the song. Maybe it needs a good lead in. Tighten up a story about it that gives people buy-in. One word in the song you wanted to use. Why did you write the song? Talk to the audience about it. I always wanted to use this word in the song. However you're going to do it. You can only be you. Everybody has their own fingerprint. We're all snowflakes. We're all different. We have our own beauty. And so how do we get into your head and have you sell the song? Because basically we're salespeople. We are on the road and we're selling a product. You can't touch it. You you can feel it, Mm -hmm. the energy. You can hear it. But it's magic what we're doing up there. And so how do we get your magic to be more magical? How do we do it? So I work with the songwriter and I go, let's talk about a story you could tell. And I interview them. I go, let's make it a little funny here. I know you're not a comedian, but let's make it have a twist. Something where you tell this, I, I did it recently. Have you with, done this much? You, it sounds like you'd I, be perfect for it. I did it, well, I love teaching songwriting workshops, yeah. so I'll work on performance, but I could do this. I feel like it's one of my superpowers. Mm-hmm. Everybody has superpowers. Like, yeah, sure. I'm not organized. <laughs> I can't write a set list, but I know how to do one thing. I know how to seduce an audience, yeah. and I know how to inspire people to write songs. Those yeah. are my superpowers. Um, like recently, Tim Easton, I went to see him play. You know Tim? Yeah. So he was playing, and I go, hey, man, I got an idea for you on this John Prine story you were telling. Because he was just saying how he, John Prine had said to him, you know, you got to keep working on songs. You need to write every day. And I go, tell the story, but go, how you snuck in to see John Prine. Really make that you snuck in backstage, and you just happened to be talking to him. You had no business being there. And that he was so nice and he took you under his wing and said, you need to write every day and do your own songs. Don't do covers, Mm -hmm. write your own stuff and go. And that really changed my life. I go and then tell the audience years later, I found out it wasn't even John Prime. It was a guy (laughs) who used to pretend he was John Prime. And Tim goes, you laugh like you didn't. He goes, I used it the other night and it killed. I I go, you don't even need to give me credit. I don't want credit. I want nothing to do with that. I don't care. I like knowing how do we take it? So we give it a twist. Uh So it just kills and then tighten up the set so that you go right from the story, but you're ready or you're talking while you're doing the intro. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Like, how do we tighten up your show and make it a show? This is entertainment, man. Yeah. You got one shot. Yeah. It's magic. That's why I love saying Springsteen. You know, like you have this, and I love it that Springsteen, like on Broadway, was like the exact same show every night. Like Leonard Cohen, my friend played drums for Leonard Cohen. And he was like, every night Leonard would kneel at the same spot and mm-hmm. take his hat off at that moment, yeah. which is totally different than what I I do. Yeah. But I find something very zen about that, like almost doing Tai Chi. Seeing it happen. Yeah, yeah. And he sure. knows it's going to work. I, I don't think there's a right or a wrong for anything. For me, I don't think that would work because I'm like a wild horse. Yeah, you'd feel you'd feel I'd feel caged. constrained. Sure. Yeah. yeah. But for other people, I think it's great. And I, I'm not anti-set list at all. It's just not your thing. No. I it would be like having a party and go riding out before people get there. At eight, we're gonna do play pin the tail on a donkey. <laughs> at eight fifteen, we're gonna do this. Like, That's what a set list shit, is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't be such a control freak. Oh my god. Well this has been a great conversation. This has been a, a wild <laughs> a wild party. Um 
Do you know Vince Herman? I don't. He's in Leftover Salmon. Oh, I, I mean, I know that band, yeah. I was playing at High Sierra, and I was on the main stage, High Sierra Music Festival, and he was talking to me before I went on stage, and he had his guitar, and I go, you want to sit in with me on a song? And he goes, yeah, which one? And I go, I don't know, I'll just surprise you. And he goes, all right, because he's like that. Yeah. And then he's standing side stage, and I'm walking up, I go, just come out on stage with me at the beginning. And he goes, really? And I go, yeah. So he comes out, and I did a whole 65-minute set with him, just telling him. Stay up. Stay up. Yeah. And I was telling the audience, we've never played together. And it made it so exciting for the audience. I go, he's never heard this. Yeah. I go, by the way, I'm going to a B minor or whatever in the bridge. <laughs> It'll slow a little bit down. And he would just be right there. And whatever mistakes were meant to happen. And the audience was like so alive. That's why they like those like folk festival workshops and stuff. That kind oh. of shit. When it works, it works great. Canada. God bless Canada because that's yeah. where they all started. Yeah. Mariposa Folk Festival yeah. is where that all started. Should we play a song? <laughs> yeah, we can play one together. Okay, let's do I that. I got a tune. Um, you got to get that E string up to a G? Yeah, and I might snap it. So let's see. Oh, shit. Okay, what we're going to do is we're going to go. I'm going to tune the guitar. Okay. I e. Tune. I'm going to go E, A, are you making this up or are you? No. <laughs> I wrote it in this weird tuning that I forgot. E A C sharp. Yeah. Do you know who Paul Westerberg is? I know who he is, yeah. Um He came into the studio when I was on a major label making one left shoe because he was what Don was and he wanted to get um Jim Keltner to plan his record. So Keltner yeah. was working on my record. And I was talking to Paul Westerberg. And then his guitar tech was in. I go, can you give me one of his secret tunings that nobody knows? And he gave me E A C sharp E A C sharp E A C sharp E. There's that E again on the G string. Yeah, a recurring theme. So I just I wrote this Christmas song. Is this going to be out before Christmas? No, it's going to be out after Christmas. That's okay, right? Yeah. I'm just excited about the song because. Let's play it. Maybe I'll put this out in July so it'll start people, you know, getting them yeah. thinking about the Christmas thing. All right. This is going to be so fun. Man, what a way. Okay. Travel far, travel wide, cross the globe against the weather. Fight the traffic. And the crowds Just so we can be together And say Merry Christmas I'd like to wish us Love and peace today I'll see you all again Along the old highway Merry Christmas I miss us all the memory I bring good tidings across the mountains and the sea I send the shout out to the heavens up above to Uncle Louie and the ones we'll miss with love we'll let the music fill each crevice in this joint can't be an optimist, then tell me what's the point? 
ten, nine, ain't you gonna join me? Eight, six, seven, five, for you my lonely heart sings. Four, three, two, I wonder what the new year That sounded so good. <laughs> That's a record. Dude, that was beautiful. That's a killer song, man. Thank you. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> Brand spanking new? Well, no, I wrote it, I believe, six years ago and forgot I wrote it. Amazing. And somebody tagged me on a YouTube video saying, this is my favorite Christmas song. I was oh, like, what is it? And then I had no views on it. And I forgot I wrote it. I just did it and shit it out one day. And I was like, oh, my God. So yesterday I was like, I don't even know what tuning I was in. And it finally came to me. It was the Paul Westerberg, EAC sharp, EAC sharp. So Amazing. yesterday I worked all day figuring out that tuning. I, I used to much. do C, G, C, G, C, C. Yeah, I did, I did that too. Because Jewel did it on a song. Okay. 
And I came home one day to our apartment and it was the guitar was in that tuning. Best thing I ever did was quit drinking. I quit 17 years ago. Was it a thing for you? Oh, yeah. yeah. I was wild. I mean, I had fun. <laughs> I don't yeah. really regret it. It was a yeah. blast, but I was just out of control. Like, yeah. look at my personality now. <laughs> and so, I mean, I did a lot of coke, too. Oh, you did? Yep. I loved coke. And so I would do coke and then have to take Valium. I was just constantly, I was like a chemist. It was like a, yeah. It was a balancing, a balancing act. act. Oh yeah. My God, man. And so now, not drinking has made me, just giving me more energy. Yeah, clearly. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be 62 February 19th. And okay. I don't see Are any you having another 50th these. birthday party? Yeah. Nice. With the Rugburns. And nice. Oliver Wood will be a special guest. Oh, cool. Hot diggity dog. That was fun. That was Steve Poltz. That was my conversation with him. And I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks so much for listening and hanging out. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks for the next installment of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is produced at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee by Steve Dawson. Please remember to subscribe to the show and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can find more info on this episode, including show notes and an audio playlist at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Thanks again to our amazing sponsors this season, Ear Trumpet Labs, Union Tube and Transistor, Black Mountain Picks, Isotope, and Spectra 1964. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.